Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Mortgage Lending Mastery. Get the knowledge you need from America's Mortgage Mentor. With more than 30 years of experience and over $1 billion in lifetime fundings, you'll learn to take your mortgage practice to new heights. Certified Mortgage Planner and CEO of KineticSparkConsulting.com. Here is Jennifer Duplessis. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Mortgage Lending Mastery. Today's podcast is brought to you by the great team at Maxwell. Have you heard of Maxwell yet? These guys are growing like crazy with loan officers across the country. Their borrower portal provides customizable loan apps, enables borrowers to connect with over 1,000 financial institutions to automatically pull documents like W-2s, bank statements, and pay stubs. And get this, even automated reminders via email and SMS to keep your borrowers accountable to actually get stuff done. How often do you get your docs back from your borrowers the very next day or even in an hour? Well, loan officers on Maxwell are getting full needs lists back in two days or less and are submitting to underwriting 45% faster than the national average. They're getting happier customers and making more money, a win-win for everybody. Maxwell starts at only $99 a month. To request a demo, simply text Maxwell to 797979. That's M-A-X-W-E-L-L to 797979. And make sure you mention Spark, S-P-A-R-K, to receive a special 20% discount off your first six months. Now let's get to our podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Mortgage Lending Mastery. I'm your host, Jen Duplessis. Today, I have one of my most favorite people in the world on this podcast with us, and that is Barry Habib, who is the CEO and founder of MBS Highway. Welcome, Barry. Jen, it is such an honor to be here with you. Thank you for all the great stuff that you do for our industry. Well, thank you. Well, same to you, same to you. So for those of you that have been under a rock and don't know who Barry is, let me give you a quick little synopsis of who he is. Um, it, first of all, Barry has originated over $2 billion in, um, in loans over his career, and um, that was many moons ago. He owned his own mortgage company as well. Uh, for the last 25 years, he's been speaking um, nationally, maybe internationally. Have you been international? I guess you can when you're on TV. I guess it's uh, you know for the vast majority in the U.S., but I have done some speaking and stuff um, to the whole tour in Canada and things like that, but uh, mostly in the U.S. Yeah, and you're you're frequently on Fox New uh, Fox Business uh, for 13 yeah. years. You had your own show on CNBC, and uh, for those of you that don't know, if you've ever had the privilege of seeing Rock of Ages, which was a Broadway, a great Broadway show that had a real nice run. Um, Barry was one of the producers. Did you write that, or were you just a producer? I didn't. I didn't write it. I was the lead producer and managing partner of of uh, Rock of Ages on Broadway. I also get a producing credit in the movie. I was in the movie with a small role, but didn't do too much there, but on the Broadway production, I was uh, intimately involved, and we had a great run. We ran for six years. We were the 27th longest running show in the history of Broadway. It was just a fun show. Yeah, what a, what a great thing to be able to, you know, another notch, right, in, in the belt of being able to say on top of $2 billion in origination. And, of course, how we know each other. I mean, we've known each other for many years. I use you. As a matter of fact, you're in my book. Um, oh. Yeah, I use a little story in my book about uh, my, my Barry Habib days. And uh, But, you know, we, we've known each other in multitude of different ways, but... but um, on a daily basis, I get to see you, like most people do, on MBS Highway as you're sharing with us uh, information about the markets, you know, and helping us be better loan officers, not lose money. I think that's really important. Be able to educate our consumers by having some great, um, well, for lack of a better word, scripting for us to be able to use. And that's why you're here today is the feds met last week, and I thought this is perfect timing for us to have a conversation. Um, so again, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence today and taking the time um, to talk with us. So let's just you know, jump right I, you into know, I, it. You know, I think, you know, I think you're awesome, and, and I appreciate you. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Thank you. 
You're welcome. Um, so let's just jump right into it. So today um, we're recording this on Monday the 25th, and last week uh, the Feds met, and the move that they made has a very significant impact in, in uh, how rates are going to be changing, but not in the way that most people think. And, and I know that you've talked about this in a couple of the, um, the daily um, market updates that you provide to us, but, and I know you'll be talking about it today, but let's talk about what does this Fed move, what, is, what was the move they made, and then what does that move, or how is that move going, to, move going to affect interest rates in the short term, and then, of course, we'll talk about moving into 2018 as well. Well, I think it's a great question, is, is the Fed did make an important step, an important move. So uh, let's start this off by, it wasn't, as you said, it wasn't how most people think. It wasn't a change to rate, although... There was a vote amongst the Fed members as to how they feel towards the end of this year for another rate hike, and 12 of 16 said they do see another rate hike before the end of the year, probably at the December meeting. So now a lot can change between now and then. But this was even more important. You see, what the Fed had to do during the last recession that we had was trying to stimulate the economy, but rates were already so low that Mm -hmm. they had, so to speak, no more bullets in their gun with rates. So what they had to do is do something different, an easing that wasn't a rate easing. It was quantitatively like a rate easing would be, and they called it QE. And what they did was they started buying bonds. They bought mortgage bonds, and they bought treasuries. And by doing so, they, as you can imagine with anything, when, when there's a lot of buying of something, what does that typically do? It drives the price up. And if you drive the price of bonds higher, the inverse of that is the yield, the interest rate. If you think about it, and you know what, what's a bond? A bond's a way to raise money by borrowing it. But if there's such demand that, that if you put money out there that you say, hey, can you lend me money, and you're getting offers all over the place for people who want to lend you money, you're going to probably wind up paying a lower rate of interest. And that's, that's exactly right. what the Fed was mm-hmm. trying to do. They wanted to try and reduce interest rates. But what they also wanted to do, and, and now they admittedly said this, is they said, we want to try and create a wealth effect by increasing the values in the stock market, driving stock prices up because they felt that that would make people feel wealthier. Their 401k accounts and their, their assets would go up and maybe they'd spend more money. So mm-hmm. this was the Fed's objective. And you can argue whether they were successful or not successful, whatever. We definitely got out of the recession. You know, Maybe there's, there's, there's uh, some good that's come out of it for sure. The only problem is, is that the Fed has purchased a whopping $4.5 trillion of bonds. I mean, that's, it's absurd. I mean, I know today we're kind of a little bit numb with when you hear trillion, this, and that. Mm-hmm. but yeah. and as, you, as you know, trillion is, is an enormous, enormous sum of money. So now when the Fed's done this, they have done so by essentially pulling it out of thin air. It's not like money that they have in the treasury that they're spending. This was just putting it, as they say, on their balance sheet. So they just kind of created $4.5 trillion. And there's been a lot of concern that, hey, you put this on there. It was supposed to be temporary. Now you've got to kind of unwind this. Mm -hmm. So just like you had quantitative easing, perhaps this would be quantitative tightening is to get this off their balance sheet. And they've got to figure out a way to do it. Now, as we all know, in the mortgage business, what happens with loans is over time, they amortize. They amortize naturally because of the payments that you make every month, which pays down that loan. But in addition to that, loans pay off because if somebody were to refinance, the old mortgage gets paid off. If somebody sells their home, the old mortgage gets paid off. And then sometimes gen people just pay off their loans. So the Fed would get this money, and what it would normally have done was reduce their balance sheet. Now, I said they have $4.5 trillion. $2.7 trillion is treasuries. $1.8 trillion is mortgage-backed securities. That's really in the heart of our world. So you would think normally that that would have come down, 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 except it hasn't. Why? Because there's the dirty little secret of what the Fed's doing is they're taking all this amortization, all the payoffs, and instead of allowing the amount that they're holding to drop, they're reinvesting it. They're putting it back in. Now, how much does that mean they're buying every month to keep it at that $1.8 trillion? They're buying like $25 billion a month. $25 billion a month of mortgage bonds is what they're buying. And they're the number one buyer of mortgage-backed securities. So now that brings us to today. 
So what the Fed said they're going to do is not sell mortgage bonds, not sell treasuries, but they're just going to allow them to run off as they normally would, but not cold turkey. In other words, we know they're reinvesting the principal payments. We know they're reinvesting the payoffs. So what they said is we're going to reinvest them still, but not all of it. Just we're going to start with a little bit less. So instead of buying $25 billion of mortgage bonds a month, they're going to curtail that by $4 billion. So in other words, they'll buy about $21 billion back. So they're still going to be a huge buyer, but just not as much. Now that's going to begin October 1st, right around the corner. And that'll be for October, November, and December. Now in January, they say, okay, we're going to cut back a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So we're going to cut back another $4 billion. So that means that now, today it's 25 starting October will be 21 and then starting January, it'll be, and the joke is here to say, only $17 billion a month, right? Only $17 right. Billion. And then, And then in April, again, they'll cut it back to 13 And then in July, they'll cut it back to $9 billion. And finally, finally, in a year, October of 2018, they will stop the curtailment, and they'll wind up still making some repurchases of mortgage bonds, but only, again, only about $5 billion a month. So that means they'll cut it back by $20 billion. So a couple of things we need to think about in the mortgage business. So we know there's a lot of moving parts, Jen. I mean, you, yeah. you are such an expert, and you teach this kind of stuff, and you do such a good job, and you know that you know, rates are based upon inflation and credit quality and other events that occur and how if the stock market's doing poorly, that'll benefit rates. If the stock market's on on a big tear, that'll hurt interest rates. So there's a lot of other variables there. But if everything were equal and the Fed's buying less, who's going to buy? So, of course, there's plenty of buyers out there, but in order to incent them to buy, you have to discount the price a little bit or raise the yield a little bit in order to incent them to buy. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the buying will be there. That's the first question that people say, oh, who's going to buy? Well, there's plenty of buyers, you know, pensions, mutual funds. I mean, like, no worries there. But it'll be probably purchased at a slightly higher yield. So we have to think that this is going to cause rates to go up a little bit, a little bit. I don't think we're going to see, you know, 6% or 7% or anything like that. We may never see 6 or 7% again. That's quite possible. We might never see those interest rates again on a mortgage. I mean, think about how, how you know, that almost seems crazy, but interest rates are governed by two things, you know, credit quality, and credit quality is really, really, really good now. And the other is inflation, and inflation is non-existent. And, you know, the Fed not just here, but every central bank around the world is trying to generate inflation just to get it to 2% and they can't do it. Doesn't mean you can never get there, but oftentimes what people don't realize and what the central bankers around the world, because you know, remember, they've never so much as been involved in a lemonade stand or a newspaper route in their life. They understand nothing about business. They're all business, academics. Right. That inflation is being held back by technology. Technology is such a wonderful thing. I mean, just think about all the things you could do efficiently from your phone that save time. I mean, you know, technology is built to replace humans. Okay, that's, and, and that's a whole other point that we should kind of talk about is because the, the purpose of technology is to replace a human being. That's, that's when you cut it to its core, you will have a greater efficiency and save a lot of money if you can get something to, to happen without involving someone to do it. If it's on automatic way to do it, it'll happen faster, it'll happen more accurately, it'll happen uh, cheaper. So that's why you're having these inflation levels suppressed and technology is not stopping, obviously. So I don't think we'll ever see interest rates reach higher levels. Now, could crazy events, God forbid, happen? Yes, they could. Um, but for the most part, we're in a very low rate environment. A couple of points to take away from this is, you know, adjustables are such a small part of the market, but they could be still a wonderful choice. They have been for a very long time. If people would have retroacted, in, in retrospect, taking a look at the, the adjustables, they probably would have done very well. And going forward and understanding where technology is and going, man, do we have to take the lead of people like yourself, Jen, in being an expert in not just how to get a loan done, but everything that surrounds it to give advice on the real estate market and the mortgage market and doing those things in a way that makes you an incredibly valuable resource to the customer. And and that's awfully hard for technology to replace. So you, know, you think about the stock industry and you think about, you know, when E-Trade started to come out and this and that. So many brokers mm-hmm. in the stock mm-hmm. industry 
were replaced, but the ones that gave great advice actually increased their business. So smaller in numbers, right. but greater profitability. Right. And, and, and Jen, I, one and last... I do... Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, please, please go ahead. And that was one last point I wanted to make on that. Yeah. Um, no, I was just going to say, you know, we're in a hyper-competitive market nowadays. And, and so... Um, and, I'll, and I guess we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but, you know, the thought about differentiation, I think, is just – I just don't like the word anymore because it's just it, – it gets diluted. I think really what we're talking about is, you know, enough just isn't enough. You can't just be mediocre. You can't be even better than mediocre. It's just not enough. You have to be hyper-competitive, hyper-excellent at what you do in all aspects. I completely agree with you. Mm-hmm. completely agree with you. I think you hit the nail on the head. I did want to make one more point, however, on the, um, on the Fed's attempt to reduce the balance sheet. Now, we said that that's the plan. I think that the plan is doomed for failure before it even begins, and I'll tell you why. So we went through this, this ramp-up to uh, allow about $20 billion a month to run, run off. It'll take a year to get to that level. So in the first year, they will have knocked off the balance sheet of $1.8 trillion, about $120 billion. So it leaves a lot, $1.68 trillion still left on the balance sheet by October of 2018. And then it'll start to run off at $240 billion a year because then it'll be at that $20 billion a year runoff. That'll be the max that it'll be. But, Jen, if you took that to its fullest extent, it would take until 2025 before the balance sheet was normalized. Now, that would be eight years from now. And the reason I don't think that that's possible or conceivable is because what the Fed is looking through unbelievably rose-colored Pollyanna glasses, that we're going to go another eight years without a recession. Now, let's just put it in perspective. We're in the ninth year of an expansion, or put other ways, the ninth year without a recession. We have never gone greater than 10 plus months, 10 years plus a few months without a recession. That doesn't mean you can't have it happen. Maybe it, does, maybe it does happen. Maybe there will be unicorns as well. But I don't foresee us getting to 2025 without a recession and going, realistically, 18 years without a recession when we've never gone much past 10 in the history of the country. Right. So recessions are likely to occur. And what happens in the recession? What's the Fed going to do? The first thing they're going to do is they're going to either try and drop rates, but the rates are going to be low already, or they're going to reestablish some form of quantitative easing. So that'll put an end to this quantitative tightening program. And then we'll program be right back program. in the same cycle. Yeah. So can, yes, we will. Okay. So let's talk historically just for a minute, since you're talking about history, just in case people have, are not subscribing to more, um, MBS Highway, and they don't really have a clear understanding of two aspects. One is, you know, the, and that I can quote for you, which is um, the understanding that the average interest rate over the last 40 years has been eight and a quarter. Right? Yeah, 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 that's exactly so we right. Have to, so we have to understand that what we're, the environment that we're in is a true gift, okay? And so whether it stays, and like you were saying, you know, that we may or may not ever get to 6 or 7%, we need to understand that what we have is a true gift and that waiting on the sidelines, and, you know, I love Brian Buffini because he, used to, he says this all the time, is like if you're going to wait on the fence with your clients, you're going to get blisters too. And, you know, and we don't want – um, blisters. Yeah, blisters is fine. Close enough. There's splinters. You're going to get a splinter too. And the, the people that are still waiting and saying, well, you know, I'm just going to wait to see if rates get lower. I'm going to wait to see if the economy gets better. You know, we're losing a lot of wealth. And, you know, there's a great, a great calculator that you have on MBS Highway, you know, for appreciation that I use all the time. We're, you're losing wealth by, by sitting back and going to this waiting game because you think rates are um, going to stay, you know, lower for any, any period longer. And I'm not saying that they're going up. I'm just saying that why wouldn't you jump in right now and create some wealth? Um, and maybe, and I don't know how you feel about that. The second part is, for those that don't understand, um, I think we need to define recession for everyone um, so that they have a clear understanding of what you're saying by, you know, the cyclical nature of interest rates rising and, and lowering. Because I know years ago I used to, it was on a cyclical term of 24 to 26 months. We had ups and downs. Um, and you're talking about a run-on of 10 years, right, that in histor- historically speaking, um, that we didn't have a recession. I'm talking about interest rate and adjustments on, on the smaller scale of things. So I think it's important that we talk about what, identi- 
what is the uh, definition of a recession? So all, all great stuff. So yeah. the technical recession definition is that you have two consecutive quarters of gross mm-hmm. domestic product or GDP in negative territory. So mm-hmm. our GDP is somewhat anemic now. In fact, you know, it's been around 2% or so. Uh, we haven't been over 3% about nine years. But given the fact that it's so anemic, it wouldn't take that that much to push it into um, a negative territory. If, if that were to occur for two consecutive quarters, then we'd be in the definition of recession. Yeah. So, um, and a telltale for that that's pretty reliable is watch the yield on the two-year treasury and watch the yield on the 10-year treasury. Yes. When the yield on yeah. the two-year is, is going to actually be higher than the 10-year if the 10-year dips below the yield on the two-year, that, typically speaking, is a great indicator, a very reliable one, that a recession is in the wings, that one is on the way. So, uh, the, you know, and again, that's telling you what's happening. Longer-term rates will be dropping, shorter-term rates will be higher, and longer-term rates mean that mortgage rates will go down, too. It's one of the reasons why real estate has performed very well during recessions. Yes, so, and I um, love those charts, being able to see that, because you see when the shaded area, when we're in a recession, that, that we actually do better. <laughs> so, we, because rates typically go down so much, and it helps yeah. real estate. So yeah. you, also, you also asked, speaking of real estate, you also asked, how do I feel about that with regards to yeah. the opportunity in the future there? And, and I think that the opportunity in real estate is extremely bright for so many reasons, you know. Um, we do a lot of work and a lot of studies around the country. And yes, we do look at forecasting appreciation and we do look at uh, historical levels, but we also break it down in every single county in the country. There's over 3,200 counties. We have the data for every single one of them everywhere in the country where we could see historical data, the job picture, income levels, where it ranks in, in, the, in the country, if it ranks in the top 10, 20, 30%. Um, and more importantly, what the future holds, you know. Uh, so, so it's so interesting, Jen, is that many areas around the country have seen home prices appreciate, and the media gets it wrong. They think that, oh, well, that means that you're seeing those areas be not affordable. Well, that's not true because affordability is not based solely on the price of the home. It's based on the price of the home as well as interest rates, as well as what the job picture looks like and what earnings are and the earnings growth. So when you combine that all together, you get an affordability index. And what we see here is for most parts of the country, it is still very affordable even though home prices have appreciated. And another thing that people make a disconnect on, mostly the media puts it in their heads, is that when we see that – Um, real estate prices have gone up, let's just pick a number, 5%. They Mm -hmm. think that incomes may not have followed suit with that and not followed in lockstep. They they don't really need to because Mm -hmm. you don't use 100% of your income on the real estate property. You use a percentage for principal and interest. And and let's just pick a number here and say that it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume 20% of your income covers principal and interest, uh, by and large. And these are numbers that, that Fannie and Freddie say is, is about right, 18 19%. Let's just pick 20% for P&I now, not taxes, insurance, MI, any of that right. stuff, okay? So if we were to look at a home and say that that home went up 5% year over year and interest rates stayed relatively stable, and let's just pick a number. Let's say last year you didn't buy the home and it was $1,000 a month for principal and interest. Now, your income at the time was $5,000 a month. And that's, if you think about it as mortgage professionals, pretty healthy and reasonable relationship to assume. I'm pretty sure we can all see that, that somebody's P&I of 1000 their income probably be around 5000 mm-hmm. So given that, if that property went up 5%, that means the payment this year, maybe they buy it this year, and it goes went up 5%. So instead of the payment being 1000 bucks a month, it's 1050 5% increase. Yeah. So it went up 50 bucks. So how much did your income have to rise in order to cover that difference? It didn't have to rise by 5%. It only had to rise by 1% of $5,000 to get the $50 a month difference. So now I know there's other things in there, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, and there's other things that might have gone up, but probably a 2% rise in income would more than cover a 5% rise in home value. And that's the thing the media doesn't understand. 
So because we're all smarter than the media, because we can do the mathematics together better than they can, we can see that the reason why home prices continue to go up greater than the, the, the levels of income and it's sustainable and affordable is because of that relationship between the two. Right, and I think, and I, you know, and you've shared that several times. In fact, I just taught a, um, by the, I call it by the numbers, um, mortgage math for realtors last week, and I used that very example. Awesome. <laughs> example. I love it. With awesome. the very numbers, because I, I copiously was writing them at your presentation. You know, I'm like, ah, write it down really quick. Um, <laughs> you know, just to help them understand that, because, uh, you know, I do think, and it's, so it's not just the media. I think that there is a general misconception by consumers through the gospel of Google, right, through the media, and even their realtors. Their realtors are telling this in, them this information. Um, and, and they're getting it wrong, and they're, they're cutting their noses off despite their face by telling these consumers, yeah, the rates are starting to go up, so it might not be affordable. So th- then the consumer plants that seed, and away they go, and they don't buy, um, which really kind of, which well, you may have some more forecasts in real estate market, but which leads us into, you know, um, this thought about enough is not enough and how we're going to make a difference as um, lenders in a hyper-competitive market moving forward with rates being low. You're right, and and we have to help our real estate agents do that as well. You see, Mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time in the psychology of sales and trying to understand it, and and I could tell you a couple of things here that that are right, right in concert with what you're saying. So first of all, and I think we can all just anecdotally relate to this. You think about the way we buy as, as consumers, right? We, we typically buy very quickly, and then later on we justify with why we bought it, whether it was a car or a pair of shoes or whatever it was, okay? You know, we get excited, we want to get it, and then we justify after we really determine that we're making this purchase all the reasons why we should have made it, right? right. So for us as mortgage professionals, people will decide if they are – seriously considering working with you in the first five minutes. Mm-hmm. So, and as you put it, in, in, to use your terminology, the hyper-competitive nature of this and that we have to be, you know, extremely smarter than our competition, that's got to come through in the first five minutes. And if we do that and if we show value, we stand a much greater chance because that c- consumer is rooting for us and wants to work with us. And once we get them there, they can be, to some extent, you know, not, if your rate's three-quarters of a percent higher than your competitors, it's going to be kind of tough. But to some extent, they'll be very forgiving in that. So mm-hmm. a couple of things to go along those lines, Dan. We've talked about this before, and you do such a good job of this as well. If, if we're off by an eighth in rate, which we're going to find ourselves, no matter, you know, who you are, you're not always going to be the cheapest rate. You're going to find yourself off in rate compared to someone else. First thing you have to do is quantify the difference because, look, somebody knows that four and an eighth is cheaper than four and a quarter. So everybody wants four and an eighth. But depending on the loan amount, you know, when you, when you start to actually do the mathematics of it, and the first step would be to actually figure out what the monthly payment difference is. Right. And depending on the loan amount, it's not going to be that much. But then you take it a step further and find out what tax bracket they're in, pretty easy to do, and find out what their tax savings would be. And once you've done that, then you figure out the true out-of-pocket, it would be on a monthly basis, but then take it a step further than that. And then figure out what it's going to be on a weekly basis. So you divide it by 4.33, because we all know there's 4.33 weeks in a month, Mm -hmm. and now you come up with the weekly differential. And then once you've done that, what, what, what most people will discover is that it's typically about a half of the cost of a cup of Starbucks latte. You mm-hmm. know, so, so the point here being is that would $2 a week, would it change your life? Would you even feel it? Would you? If $2 fell out of your pocket, would you notice it? Most right. people wouldn't. That's a so tip, why, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even a tip, so, well, right? And so you, you throw that it. away all the time. Don't even you think throw, about it. You would not think about that. You would not right. think about it. So, so why would someone drive you nuts over this? You can almost shame them into it, but in order to do that, you have to quantify it. Because then it's almost, hey, this is silly to be worried about $2 a week. Let's worry about the strategy that's going to make this payoff? Should you be thinking about an adjustable? Is the real estate market good in your area? What All these important aspects mm-hmm. need to take priority over two bucks a week. 
Right. And by the way, you can even make that even better by defining the fact that we talk in gross terms in lending. You know, when we say 4%, it's gross. When we say payment, it's gross. And when we take that to an effective interest rate because of the tax benefit that the client has, it's even better. You're right. Because you're 100% if you're making right. A pay, if you're making a, you know, a payment, sorry, if you're making a, um, a $2, you know, buying a $2 coffee, <laughs> good luck finding it. But if you do right. find a $2 coffee, effectively, because of the fact that it's not a taxable item, you're paying more for it, right? So we can switch that and move that into our advantage and even take it, drive it down even further to kind of make them feel silly, so to speak, without you know, ruining our relationship, of course. We don't want to make them feel that bad. Well, yeah, you, but, but you're correct in that quantification is important. Quantification, mm-hmm. what it means after tax, what it means comparatively first, what it means after tax secondarily, and then break it down to, break it down to a weekly level because people can understand what it means each week and then use an analogy. You know, the easy one to do is a cup of Starbucks coffee or something of right. that nature. Because, and, you know, a, a vanilla latte, at, oh, by the way, a plain, you can look up the prices on Starbucks' website, $3.65 just for a Starbucks latte. You want to hit vanilla in there, and you're up to four fifty or four sixty five. Now, I know some areas are more expensive and whatnot, but it's a really good comparison. And by the way, speaking of how individuals purchase a home, I think this is really critical. When you think about how somebody buys a home, it'll typically start as a, an online experience today. But it's, it's, an, it's, it's a visual experience. The way they shop is visually, with their eyes. And mm-hmm. then if they visit the home in person and they like it, it becomes an emotional decision, or let's call that a matter of the heart. So they, they shop with their eyes, they become emotionally attached with their heart, but the decision to buy, wow, that's done with your wallet or pocketbook. That's a financial decision. Mm-hmm. And guess what, Jed? Guess, guess what? Nobody sells that way. How do realtors sell a home? Oh, you look at the beautiful wood floors they've got in here. And did you know they just put in these granite countertops? Yes, they notice do the that. Spacious, yeah, notice the spacious, notice the spacious closets, the proximity to schools. That's how realtor sells. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not knocking them, but that's just right. not how somebody buys a home. Okay, that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with how somebody buys a home. And mortgage professionals, the vast majority are guilty of the same thing. I mean, think about how a mortgage professionals yeah. say, I'll get you approved. I'll get you approved on time within the contract. I'll get you closed on time. I'll make it as painless as possible. And I'll fight for the lowest rate. These are all important things, but it's not how somebody buys a home. Yeah, so, bingo. So bingo. why not sell to somebody the way they buy? Why not well, do something your competitors aren't? I- I, I totally agree, and I think, you know, one of the, the key differentiators in my practice has always been that, you know, I work with financial planners and estate planners, and the reason that I work with so many of them, um, and, I, and I do work with realtors, I, a some, I like some realtors, right, and I'm very picky about who I work with, is because realtors are in the home services industry. They are not in the financial industry, and I want to be able to speak my my terminology, my language with people that understand what I'm doing. And I am a financial services person. Um, and because when, a, when you ask a client, you know, I ask a client, so, so tell me about, you know, what do you want to buy? What do you want? Oh, I want a three-bedroom, two-bath. Okay, well, no, that's not what I'm asking. <laughs> that's what you tell the realtor, right? And the only thing that the realtor knows about finance typically is going to be the percentage of the purchase price so they know what their commission check is. Now, there's few that are different, but generally that's going to be the case. And so we have to up-level ourselves to be astute in understanding the markets like you teach us on a daily basis, running these calculators that you have on your website all the time, not sometimes, but all the time. And, you know, up-leveling our credibility and our skills is the only way we're going to be able to be extremely competitive in today's environment. And I've felt this way for 20-some years, you know. Of course, I know that. This isn't new for me, but but this is key. And, and you make a very, very good point, you know, is that we've got to go beyond just, you know, the – I, I, people expect a good rate from me. They expect good service. They expect that I'm going to close on time. But they, those aren't those aren't unique selling propositions. That's right. the price of admission, right? In this competitive Correct. marketplace. So what right. we what we suggest that people do is really give them a real estate report card. You know, if if you mm-hmm. think about 
Think about a company like Zillow. This is a multi-billion dollar publicly traded behemoth of a company that started based on one thing, and that was the Zestimate. That was how they built their company. And right. I think many people agree that they weren't necessarily considered accurate, especially in the early years. But yet the thirst or the desire for this was so great that it propelled this company. So if we just, you know, we don't have to create stuff. Just just look at what's out there. It's pretty easy. If this is what people want, just give them what they want. If this is the way they shop, give them what they want. If this is the way they buy, rather, sell them the way they buy. So what we do is we do a real estate report card for everyone, which every single county in the country updated on a weekly basis will tell you how many homes are for sale, what's the inventory like, what's the levels of inventory change, what's the income, how does the income compare, what's the affordability in this particular market, how does it compare what's the what's the wage growth unemployment rate and most importantly we show them the historical rates of appreciation and the forecasted rates of appreciation and then we'll take their individual purchase price or the median home price and given the price per square foot and then use that number to show them how much this home will be worth each year into the future so that for the very first time, they're being sold the way they bought. Think about your customers today. Not a lot of inventory, so they've got to settle for something. And then they can't even get a good deal after they settle, so they've got to pay full asking price or over asking price. That's a hard pill to swallow. Plus, the media, who's been wrong for the past six years, beats them up every day with bad information. Mm-hmm. And then that customer is very easy to flake out on you or rent or just get like a deer in the headlights. So here's where you can look like a hero and show them that financial opportunity. If they see they're going to make sixty or eighty or a hundred thousand dollars or more on this investment, makes it a lot easier if it doesn't have all the features you had dreamed about. <clears throat> makes it a lot easier if you came in full asking price or even over asking price. So it's simple. And by the way, you become your real estate agent's best friend. It's not even a fair fight because while your competitor brings in a bag of donuts, you're helping that realtor sell the home. And, and that's the difference. And, and, you know, and, and that's just one aspect of the things that we believe in. You, and you use all the tools. You know, the buy versus rent tools, which has the county data, mm-hmm. is really critical. And, and so is the appreciation calculator you had mentioned earlier. There, there's a lot of different tools that will help. And then why not co-brand it with the realtor? <laughs> and then why not, why not do a campaign for the realtor? I mean, you know, I, I do want to say... Mm-hmm. that one of the important things that we need to look at is the future of real estate. And if we just kept it simple, and just, like, I, I don't like to get super complicated. I mean, we could, but just look at supply and demand. You know, people say, oh, is there a bubble coming? Well, you need something to sell for it to be a bubble. We don't have anything to sell. You can't have a bubble with nothing to sell. Okay, so inventory levels are at their lowest levels. Every market in the country is struggling. Builders can't keep up. They can't just flood the market. Why? There's labor shortages. And by the way, these terrible storms in Texas and Florida are exacerbating that problem. Yep. And then in addition to that, Jen, banks aren't lending them on spec. They lent them on spec in the past, and then they got burned. So before it was like the field of dreams. Hey, build it and they will come. Well, when they didn't come, banks got burned, and builders aren't going to be given those reins again. So what's going to happen is that it's going to be difficult for builders to keep up. Now here on the other hand, on the demand side, it's the flood that we are about to see of births from 33 years ago. Yeah. We know Zillow tells us the median age of a first time home buyer is 33 years old. So if it's 33 years old, let's go back 33 years ago to 1984. And what do we see? That the birth rates every year, 84, 85, 86, it looks like a staircase. Every single year was greater than the next. So the demand for the next eight years will get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And then it doesn't fall off a cliff. It levels off to about 4 million births a year, which were the highest births for baby boomers. So we're about to see this huge influx of 33-year-olds coming that are going to need some place to live. And if you think they're going to put up a tent, that's one thing. But if you think they're going to want to live in a home, either buying or renting it, one way or another, these things are going to be very supportive to pricing, and you're going to also be in a position where builders cannot meet that demand. So the first thing we learned in the law of economics, if supply grows and demand is, I'm sorry, if, if demand grows, pardon me, and supply is tight, it pushes prices higher. Now, we don't want prices to go through the roof, 
But the other thing that people don't recognize is they say, oh, well, 3% appreciation, four, uh, that doesn't sound very exciting. Well, you know what? Albert Einstein said the only real magic out there is the magic of compound interest. Right. This, and he's the right. The eighth wonder. The eighth wonder of the, the world. The eighth wonder. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I was just um, pulling some information, some data a couple of days ago. I was doing a rent versus own. And in the county, now I live in Loudoun County, which is the richest county in the United States. Okay. Congratulations. And, yeah, thanks. Um, but I was pulling in, and I actually called your office, and I said, guys, I think there's a problem here because it shows 16% appreciation in my county. But, you know, as we started digging a little bit deeper, and I had a real estate agent in the office with me, ironically, because I was sharing with her the 90-day uh, marketing plan and, you know, about co-branding with her, about with clients and things like that that you have on your site. And, um we were, we were kind of walking through the co-branding and how I can help her, you know, with, with uh, helping people realize where we are in the market today. And what we realized is that uh, our county is one of the few counties surrounding uh, D.C., right, the DMV, the, de- the um, District Maryland Virginia Market. It's one of the few counties that we can And, it, and it's Loudoun, Loudoun County, L-O-U-D-O-U-N? L-O-U-D-O-U-N, yeah, Loudoun County. I got it up it's, here. Yeah, you're yeah, top 10% of the, few, the country. Yeah, one of the few counties that, um, and we haven't had that, okay? We haven't been like gangbusters like inside the Beltway or anything like that. Like why all of a sudden? And so, but we're one of the few areas where we have land to build. The problem is they can't keep up. Can I tell you a few things about Loudoun County? Yeah, yeah. You're in the top 10% in the country in median income. There's only 1,100 homes for sale. Your inventory has dropped 16% year over year. And yeah. guess what? Yeah, you, you were right. 14% forecasted appreciation in one year. Over the next five years, 34%. The median home yeah. value of 463000 right. if you purchased it five years from now, you'd gain $158,000. And by the way, all this great stuff, which we think is really, really great, there's a hot market, maybe it's not affordable, because your median income is so high. By the way, your unemployment rate is less than 3%. I know, and your median income, your, And your median income is triple- the, the national average, yeah. because it's so strong, your affordability index is 168. What does that mean? An affordability index of 100 means the median income can afford to buy the median home price with 20% down. You can afford, in this county, to purchase the median home price 1.68 times, or 168% of it. So you'd be you know, much, much higher than the national average. I mean, this is a red-hot county, and the point is is that you should be, as you successfully are, take this information and scream it from the rooftops and then co-brand this stuff with your realtor. It's a great county. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, we have, we have uh, I was going to say AOL. We do have AOL, but do you know, um, I, I believe the number is like 94% of all Internet traffic in the entire world runs through our county because we have AOL and we have Google. It's amazing. But you know what the <laughs> yeah. cool thing is, though, is just like you just mentioned Loudoun County, and I, of course I wanted to get the spelling right, but within five seconds from getting that, you I was data. able to recite back all of that data. And you could do all this from your phone and then co-brand it from your phone, send out the report from your phone. So, I mean, everyone should be doing this, really. Uh, yeah. if, you wanna, if you want to be that resource, I mean, that's who you want to be. Awesome. So as we, as we kind of tidy things up today, I wanted to see if you could give us a, um, I, I cannot remember the name of this. Why is it always like this? But uh, just a uh, quick, quick round of, you know, what do you think rates are going to do next year? I know, I know you've, all, you've kind of talked about it, but it just kind of give us a bullet. Say rates are going to remain the same. They might go up this. Real estate's going to be strong. You needed this. You needed that as a loan officer. Kind of give us, you know, a synopsis here. So here we go. So interest rates, first of all, um, everything else equal, rates should gravitate a little bit higher, not much. They're probably going to be very dependent on what happens with North Korea. Yeah. If bad stuff happens with North Korea, we'll see interest rates decline. If things are tempered and settled down, we'll probably see interest rates um, slowly rise, not too bad, probably stay underneath 5% without too much of a problem on a 30-year fix with zero points. Okay. The other thing, watch the stock market. The stock market, in, and I've been wrong on the stock market. I think the stock market's a little bit pricey, but I've been wrong. However, if the stock market does correct, 
then bonds will improve, rates will drop, okay? Stocks go down, rates will go down. So these are a few of the things I'd watch. I'd watch the 10-year treasury as a reasonably good barometer. Um, watch levels of like 231 on the upside. A move above that would be, would be bad um, because there'd be continued uh, push upwards. And if we can get the 10-year treasury back down under 218, I think that we probably see 210 or even 1.98 on the 10-year treasury as a realistic level, and that would definitely spark some refinances. So watch those two levels on the 10-year uh, as barometers in the short term. Real estate, I really think that real estate for most parts of the country, you know, real estate's very local, so it's why you should look mm -hmm. what your county's doing. But by and large, I think real estate is still an in incredibly good investment. And it's great that we're not in a situation like a bubble where you had home ownership rates at 70%. It's only 63% right now. So there's a lot of upside room. It's also great that not everybody is buying homes who shouldn't be buying homes. We know underwriting guidelines are, are, are really, really, you know, maybe where they should be. Who knows? But I don't want to be the judge of that. I'm saying the performance of the portfolios are doing very, very well because underwriting guidelines are, are tight. And then in addition to that, you have this great demand coming amongst tight supply. It, it is such a wonderful opportunity. If you want to know a good place to put your money or to advise your customers to put their money, it should really be a big consideration to put it in real estate, and, and they should get the data that we're talking about so that they can evaluate it better. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, so if I'm listening to this and I've not heard of MBS Highway, or if I'm listening to this and I have MBS Highway and I just maybe listen to you in the morning sometimes or I, you know, look at the charts sometimes, what are my next steps to, I mean, I know what I would tell people is get a jam session, some power hours to ingrain yourself in everything that's available on the site. But what, what would be the next steps um, to just get quick reaction, you know, to get some uh, knowledge very quickly aside from the long-term educational aspect that so send an email to support at MBS Highway. It will help you if you're already a subscriber. If you'd like to get on board, if you'd like to do a corporate uh, situation, you know what, if you have a question for me too, uh, barry at barryhabib.com. I'm happy to try to respond to your, to your questions. If you have questions about you know, what's going on out there, I'll be happy to. Um, so you can reach me that way. You can call our office at 732-526-7900. Uh, and if you want to get your company on, if you want to, if you want to you know, take a deeper look, if you already have the product. The cool thing about what we've done, too, is we've, we've really used video a lot so that every page on the site has a little question mark on the bottom, which if you click it, it'll play a video on how to go through that tool, that calculator. So instead of you having to sit through a whole thing with everything, it's specific to what do I want to learn more about. And you watch a five-minute video, and then you're an expert. So uh, we're, we're easy. You know, we're, we're not a tough tool to use. We're very, very intuitive, and, and we try and simple it. We try and make it simple. You know, remember, I was an originator just like you guys. I didn't want stuff to slow me down. I wanted stuff that will <laughs> help me. I wanted to help me close more right in the natural course of doing business. I don't want to have to kind of do something that's outside the box. And I, I just want it to be a natural sales tool. Right. Right. And I want to just, you know, throw in this too, which we didn't talk about and we don't, we don't have time to talk about, but um, if you aren't looking at the uh, fixed versus arm, I'm using that more and more and especially, and, I, and I'm just going to leave it like this, this really was, resonated with me and especially in a low interest rate environment when a client said to me, first time home buyer, I said, where are you living? He said, well, I'm not paying any rent. I'm living with mom and dad so I can save money for down payment. Great. How much are you going to put down? Well, I haven't saved any. It's going to be a gift, right? And we're doing an FHA loan. So I said, okay, well, how long do you think that you're going to own the home? Five years. That's it because we're going to have kids and then we're going to move up. Hmm. Let's talk about that for a minute because if you're going to put 3.5% down on an FHA loan and you didn't save the money yourself but you were living with mom and dad as a means to save and now you're going to go to a $2,500 a month payment and with normal amortization, which by the way your website will do, but with normal amortization over that same period of time, you won't have enough equity to list the house, pay the closing costs for another buyer, let alone save the money, um, have enough money to buy your next house because you've demonstrated that you can't save money spending zero in rent, how are you going to save money spending $2,500 in a mortgage payment? So I had to help them realize that that was not going to happen. 
But what we did talk about was the possibility of doing a 5-1 arm on an FHA loan and accelerate, and since you came in and since you like the fixed rate payment so much, let's go ahead and pay the higher fixed rate payment, but let's get a five-year arm and then pay off the loan substantially faster so that you can be in a position to move up. That example I've used over and over and over again. And I know statistically you share this all the time that people don't have their mortgages for more than seven years. They don't live in their homes currently for more than nine years. So it's silly to be taking a 30-year fix in, in some cases. I mean, some people are a little afraid of it, but I'm showing it and I'm demonstrating it on a regular basis. Well, I love that. I mean, obviously, you know, I love hearing that because, that's, <laughs> right. you know, it's something that we preach and, and uh, that's exactly how we put it. So you, you, you could, in my opinion, you could not have said it better. Um, you know, the, the tool that we use shows exactly that. It says, hey, you're, you're happy with the fixed rate payment, but what if, and to you use the five-year, if you use a seven-year, you know, most people would say my seven-year is probably a half a percent cheaper than a 30-year fix. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes a little less, but let's just say it's around a half a percent. If you took that savings, whether it be you know, 150 bucks a month or whatever it was, and say, okay, Take the seven-year, but make the payment like you were making the 30-year fixed payment. That 150 bucks a month added to principal after the seven years is a large sum of money, you know, $20,000 or so. And then what will happen is, is that people don't recognize that when that adjustable happens in the eighth year, it's based on the, the remaining principal balance, which is a lower balance. So you've saved so much money that just mathematically speaking, you have to be cheaper than the 30-year fixed would have been for at least 9, 10, 11, 12 years. And that's you know, assuming that rates go to 9% in the future, which I don't think will ever happen. But even assuming that, it'll still take you 10 years. And the chances of somebody living in a home, the same home, with the same mortgage right. for 10 years is about 8%. It's about eight. Yeah. So what you what you have is you have now ninety four percent of all applications today are for fixed rates. So ninety four percent of people are betting they're going to be in the eight percent camp. The math just doesn't work, and it takes people like you, Jen, to eloquently explain that to them. And even if they don't pick the adjustable, they gain that trust and respect for the advice that you've given, and at least teaching them something new, and that you know differentiates yourself from those automated dealios that are going to continue right. to come out there. Right. That's advice how you become irreplaceable. Price. Yeah, advice versus price. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Barry. It's, you know, always, I, I just love listening to you. I can just listen to you all day long. I, oh. I really, really appreciate everything that you're doing for our industry to help level us up and educate us, you know, to be better. You know, it's been a passion of mine for years and years that, that we, we are mortgage professionals, and we just cannot take it lightly that someone's coming to us buying and spending more money than they'll spend on anything else they'll ever buy. Maybe, maybe a second home boat, maybe, okay? But this is the biggest thing they're ever going to buy, and for us to loosely just lip off and quote rates is just absolutely asinine. It really is. It doesn't do anything to create an, um, an expert uh, uh, experience with our industry, and it drives me crazy. So thank you for every day putting out that effort to make us better. Uh-huh. Thanks so much. You're so awesome. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Thanks for being here today. Great, great time. Okay, guys, so uh, we recorded this on Monday the 25th. I am releasing it, um, as you already know, because you're all listening. On Thursday, I wanted it to be timely information for you um, so that you can uh, grow your practice, especially as we're heading into 2018, right? This is, we're going to end, we're going to end really, really strong. We're going to put some new things into play for next year, and this is a perfect opportunity to introduce this to you. So, again, thank you so much for listening. Please share with your colleagues and friends, and please don't forget to continue to go to iTunes and write reviews for us. We really appreciate that very much. And I will catch you next time on Mortgage Lending Mastery. Hey, everybody. Once again, I'd like to thank Maxwell for sponsoring today's podcast. If you are looking to reduce your paperwork, speed up your time to close, and have happier borrowers, they would love to hear from you. Simply text Maxwell to 797979. That's Maxwell, M-A-X-W-E-L-L, to 797979. And make sure to mention SPARK, S-P-A-R-K, to receive a special 20% off for your first six months. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Mortgage Lending Mastery. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a comment or rating. Get more free email updates, transcripts, selling and education resources, and Jen's upcoming speaking events. 
just visit our website at kineticsparkconsulting.com.